Kirby, let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage this morning? And I pray that you would soften our hearts. May we not harden them. May we not be subject to your judicial hardening, which sometimes you perform on people who persistently refuse your encouragements. May we be tender-hearted people who love your word and delight in it and want you to use it for our good and your glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a phenomenon in life that the more technical, the more expert-oriented an occupation is, the more detailed preparations are. Okay? Let me illustrate this with two things. I've seen this in action twice. I have on the screen in front of you a checklist. This is a checklist that a pilot goes through if he's flying a 737 and he's going to be going over the ocean at night. I remember the day before COVID struck, I went with a pilot in a little Cessna. He was a local pilot here, and we flew down to St. George. He had a long list of uh, checklist items that we went through three different times. Every time we landed, we would stop and we would work through that checklist again, and then we worked through it again. And when that little Cessna hit some turbulence, and I think my head hit the top of the airplane, I comforted myself with the fact that we worked through that checklist. <laughs> There's another time you'll see a checklist. I've got another checklist up here that you'll see. This is a surgical safety checklist published by the World Health Organization. And this is just a basic model, actually. My wife had to have cesareans when we delivered our children, and I was always treated to the post-op checklist, where they would check off every instrument that was used in the delivery of the baby to make sure that everything that was supposed to be on the outside stayed on the outside. And it was always a little bit disconcerting for them to work through the utensils that were used down to the tiniest little shard of sponge. When there's a lot on the line, it's important to know what you're doing, to check yourself, and to keep working through every detail. God is about to start something big in the book of Exodus. We're going to see plagues rock a nation. We're going to see another nation bird, and we're going to see people moving all over at God's command. There's a lot to do and a little bit of time to do it. And God, right here in these verses, as you heard from Kirby, saw that there are several different little checkpoints that God is going to bring us in this passage alone. Let's get a little review before we dive into Exodus 4, 18 through 31. We see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, that Yahweh, the timeless one, the self-existent God, commissions Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. He says, I want you to go and talk to Pharaoh personally. I want you to lead my people out. I want my people to worship me. And you might remember that Moses was disinclined to do so. He had five objections. What about the people? What about me? What about you? What are you going to do about this or that? And God answers them all. And on the fifth and final objection, Moses simply is rebellious. He instructs God. He commands God. God, it is time for you to send somebody else. And Moses receives the anger of the Lord. God burns against him in some way that's obvious to Moses. And he says, no, 
you are going. And so Moses here begins the final preparations for the mission. And we even see a few of the opening points of this mission. In fact, as we read through this passage, we see nine fast-moving developments here in this last section of Exodus 4 of how God is beginning to do something grand. There's nine fast-moving developments. Now, what I'd like to do this morning, because we're going to be taking the Lord's table, and I don't want to abandon all of our children to our volunteer children's church workers for an hour and a half while we take the Lord's table and work our way through this sermon. We're going to work through these very quickly. Okay? These nine developments we're going to clip through at an accelerated pace. Then what we're going to do is settle in on a couple of lessons, three lessons as a matter of fact, that we can derive from all of these nine developments. Okay? So buckle up. We're going to move through these nine developments quickly. We'll settle in on three lessons, and then we'll take the Lord's table together. So what are these nine developments, these nine developments of final preparation? The first one occurs in chapter 4, verse 18. Moses obeys the Lord, and he goes to pick everything up and head down to Egypt, but he has a detour first. He goes back home, and he asks the blessing of his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, we've noted before how Moses was sort of reliving the life of Jacob. Here's a man who was on the run from a murderous uh, vengeance. He shows up at a well where he meets his wife and is headed back home to be with his people. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 31 how Jacob just sneaked away from Laban and didn't tell him what he was doing? Moses breaks that trend, and it's supposed to be here for our instruction. Perhaps Moses was even hoping that maybe Jethro would kill the whole thing and not give his blessing. And so he goes to Jethro, and he says, I I would like to go see if my people are still alive. And by the way, this will sound a bit repetitive as we go through commentators are a bit perplexed by this statement, I'd like to go see if my brethren are still alive. And I'll admit, I'm a bit perplexed by it as well. Perhaps Moses is giving a euphemism. I want to go see how everybody is. I want to see how it's going. Or perhaps, in humility, he's minimizing his role as liberator. I'm going to go check in on those people, which is a classic understatement for I'm going to go take charge through the Lord's power. Either way, Jethro definitely gets the gist. And Jethro, as sort of a first confirmation of God's working in Moses' life, this was by first confirmation, I mean, Moses, of course, had had the signs of the staff uh, morphing, and he saw his hand turn leprous. He saw the burning bush. But this was the first confirmation outside of that conversation with Moses and the Lord. And so here is Moses' father-in-law saying, yes, go in peace. Go do what you need to do. And that leads us to the second development, where the Lord reassures Moses in chapter 4, verse 19. This is one of the ones I want to settle in on very briefly. In 4.19, God comes to Moses, and he says, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. You see, Moses was in Midian to begin with. 
because he had committed premeditated murder. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He was filled with rage and he waited. And he lied in wait. He waited until nobody else was looking. And he killed that Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. He was not as sneaky as he thought he was. And his crime was known and he had to run. This sin of Moses's became, in his mind, one of those life-defining sins. One of those things, one of those sins that he's so ashamed of, he doesn't think he can bring it to God. And so you'll notice, when Moses gives his five reasons for not going, never once does he say, I, I'm a criminal. I'm a convicted murderer. I'm a felon. I'm at large. I'm wanted in that land. No, no. This was one of those sins that Moses couldn't even articulate in front of the Lord. He felt so guilty over it. When he thought about it, he would bring his sins, of course, to the Lord, but the small ones. And then when it came to that one, he would turn away in shame thus undercutting the forgiveness and grace that God would have for him. But God knows what's in man's heart, and God knows Moses. And so God volunteers. Moses, you may have mentioned one of these objections. You may have had an extra objection, one that you're too ashamed to tell me about. You're a murderer. But I want you to know the statute of limitations has ended. And you can legally go back there now. This was a common practice back in those days when the king of a land died. All the crimes that had been committed were basically granted blanket amnesty. A new administration was over the nation and they would not be pursuing Moses. Sometimes we Christians get a little legalistic about the way we ask God for forgiveness. And we wonder that if we don't say the words exactly or articulate what we've done to the letter, that somehow God is withholding forgiveness because we have to mention this thing in its exact specificity. And friends, that's just not true. Go to the Lord. And if you can't even choke it out because of your shame and guilt, that's okay. God will forgive. God will cleanse. And he's not done with you. He might want to use you just like he wanted to use Moses. Well, this brings us to our third development, this third point of final preparation. Moses, in verse 20, packs everything up and leaves. Moses, of course, had accumulated 40 years of supplies in Midian. He had two sons. He had a wife. This isn't a life that's easily gathered on animals. But he does. He goes home and he packs it up. And yet again, God is meeting a need that Moses probably already sensed. Yesterday, I was playing pickleball with our church intern, with Carl Walker, and our other coach, James, wherever he is. I don't see him in the crowd. Our other two coaches over here. And the young and sprightly Pastor Chris, and I've got 45-year-old knees. <laughs> and i got to say, I was feeling them a little bit last night. Well, Moses is 80. 
And he had to have been thinking, God, what do you want an 80-year-old doing leading your people back here or leading your people out of the land? But if Moses would have just opened his eyes, he would have seen God's provision. Moses, at the ripe old age of 80, puts the boys on the donkey and he walks. We're told later on, Moses says, look, your shoes and sandals didn't wear out. Your clothing didn't get old. This was something that Moses kind of came to as time went on. And so Moses already in his physical bearing began to see that God was holding him up and equipping him for this task. Our fourth development, our fourth final preparation that we see in this text this morning is that the Lord reaffirms the commitment that he made to Moses. There are two firsts. I really want you to look at the passage here, verses 21 through 23. There's two firsts, and we're going to encounter them several more times as we work through the book of Exodus. So I, have, I, I don't want to try to cover either of them exhaustively today. The first one is this. The Lord said, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart. Here will be a recurring theme all through the first half of the book of Exodus. About a third of the time, we're told that Pharaoh hardens his heart. About a third of the time, we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hard. And about a third of the time, we're told that God is the one who was hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's important to note that in this particular passage, what God is predicting is not the beginning, but the end. When we get to the final plague, I will demonstrate my power over Pharaoh, and I will harden his heart. Now, we in the 21st century read that, and we can lay blame at God and say, God, what you are the cause of Pharaoh's sin. But that question forgets all the previous chapters. And what we see is the man Pharaoh consistently ignoring the Lord. Now, I think I say this in a little bit later slide, but I, it's probably more appropriate to say it here. Everybody point, if we were to say a body part, point to your thinker, okay, point to your thinker, okay, good, good, right here, okay, everybody point to your feeler, okay, your feelings, where would you point, right here, okay, good, good, excellent, if you were a Hebrew and I said point to your feelings, do you know where they would point, they would go here, <laughs> they would point down here in their tummy, like, like when you were uh, 19 years old, and you saw a young lady that you had a crush on, and you got the, the butterflies in your stomach. Maybe that, maybe that didn't happen to you, but it happened to me. You would feel that trembling. And if I were to tell a Hebrew person to point to their thinker, they would point right here. They would point to their hearts. The heart was the seat of thought and expression. And so when we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart, 
what, the, what Moses is trying to get across is that Pharaoh had incontrovertible evidence put in front of him. And he deliberately, stubbornly refused. Every bit of material that he needed to repent, to let the people go, to change his decision. What we're talking about here is not a one-off refusal. This is a hardened and persistent rebellion that's well thought out before the Lord. And again, I think I mentioned this later, but I probably should have thought of this better when I put this outline together. I'll say it here. We're told that six different times Pharaoh hardened his own heart before the Lord hardens his. And so what we're left to conclude is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was a judicial measure from the king of kings to say, my patience is done, my grace is over. Now there's coming a time for every one of us when God's mercy comes to an end. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And God had had enough of Pharaoh's rebellion. Pharaoh would have more opportunities, and had he turned, he, God would have forgiven. But in an, act, in an act of punishment, of judicial hardening, God performed this task on Pharaoh, and he calls his shot here. We're also told in this passage that God thinks of Israel as his firstborn son. Now, this is a theme that we'll chase for the rest of the book of Exodus. I only have listed up here the reference, Psalm 8927. Psalm 8927. You'll want to write down that cross-reference if you'd like to. The word firstborn doesn't mean the first one to be born, okay? Um, I have an illustration here for you. Um, get the word pineapple in your mind. Pineapple. Did you know that a pineapple doesn't come from a pine tree and it's not an apple, okay? And that a cowboy is neither a cow nor a boy, but a man who rides on a horse, okay? A root word can lead you astray. It's how we use that word that determines its meaning. And here, the word firstborn doesn't mean first person born any more than a pineapple comes from a pine tree or is an apple. The word firstborn here means place of prominence, the king, the prince, the anointed one, as it were. And you can see that in Psalm 89, 26, I believe. There, we're told that David is the firstborn. Psalm 89, 27, David is the firstborn. But we know that David was the youngest of eight. He wasn't a firstborn. He was the, the baby of the family. But he's called the firstborn because he's the, the anointed king. He's in a position of prominence and status. And that's what God is telling Pharaoh here. He says, this is my firstborn son. He is in a place of prominence. And God is laying out to Pharaoh right from the very start, and he's calling a shot to Moses. There's big consequences here, Moses. And Pharaoh's going to refuse you, so don't be surprised when it happens. I'm equipping you now, and this will be the end game. Our fifth preparation for Moses' 
journey to Egypt to liberate his people is what is admittedly a very unique scene. The Lord confronts Moses in chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. Moses has been in Egypt for 40 years. He went there when he was about 40 years old. He was born into a Hebrew family in Egypt, and Moses had likely been circumcised. This was the sign of the covenant established way back with Abraham. Moses had to flee Egypt, and he landed in Midian where he took his wife Zipporah, and he had two boys. And it's obvious from the text that for whatever reason, they did not circumcise those boys to bring them in to the visible sign of the covenant. We don't know why. Commentators argue why. Maybe Moses didn't know about the right, or maybe Zipporah thought it was awful and gross. The fact is, we don't know. Either way, God was holding Moses accountable for this rebellion. And what's even more interesting is the Lord, it says, met Moses to cause his death. God, in a sense, has come down to attack Moses. The pronouns here are very odd. We don't even know which person needed to be circumcised, to be frank. And we don't know who Zipporah touched with the blood. The pronouns are all vague, and the scene is odd. All we're left to conclude, I think that we can safely conclude, is that when the Lord came after Moses, Moses was prostrate in some way that he was no help. He was tackled, as it were, to the ground by the Lord, and his life was in grave danger. But Zipporah instantly knew that it was on account of their stubborn refusal to follow the most basic covenant commandments for people of faith. The Lord struck her conscience immediately. And don't we find that that's often the case? I have a friend. He'd been living in known sin. He was walking away from the Lord, and his wife had signed them up for a couple's weekend at a Christian camp. He told his wife he'd meet her up at the camp, and she drove up there, and he got off work, and he drove to the entrance of the camp and stopped, turned his car around, and drove around, drove to the grocery store, drove to a coffee shop, drove to a park. Eventually, the sun went down. He drove his car back to the entrance of the camp, got out of the car, kneeled and said, forgive me for this sin. And this sin that only he knew about, his wife had no clue what was going on. This sin that only he knew about, he knew he had to take care of before driving his wheels onto the grounds of that Christian camp. Sometimes 
we know there's something between us and God, and we're walking away from the Lord. And God just persistently keeps bringing it to our minds. That was the case for Moses and Zipporah. And as soon as there was danger, Zipporah immediately knew, I have to take care of this. And she acted quickly and saved Moses' life. That brings us to our seventh preparation. Moses and Aaron reunite. God goes to Aaron in chapter 4, verse 27. And he says, I want you to get up, and I want you to go meet Moses. And they're happy to meet one another. And Aaron apparently isn't told anything about the mission. But as soon as Moses and Aaron reunite, here's yet another confirmation for Moses on a one-on-one level that God is in this. He tells Moses everything that's going on, and apparently Moses didn't even show him the signs. He just told him. And Aaron says, wow, this is wonderful. And they're, we don't know if they'd had any interaction during Moses' long sojourn in Midian, but at any rate, they're back together. And Aaron believes. And it's glorious. And then we have our eighth development. Moses and Aaron gather the elders together. And they, they reach out and find all the elders of Israel and they bring them to a specific location. Let's go back to, by the way, that first one that Moses and Aaron reunite. I forgot to mention something. You know, it's, it's really a miracle that they even found each other. Did you know that where Moses was and where Aaron was were 300 miles apart? And they were going to be meeting in the wilderness, which is the Sinai Peninsula. They're going to be meeting in an area that was about the same landmass as the state of Indiana. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have tracking apps. (laughs) Just go meet Moses in Indiana. Okay, (laughs) where is he? Well, clearly, the Lord was leading Moses and the Lord was leading Aaron. And they connected. Here's a miracle right before their eyes that they, in all that land, would somehow cross each other's path. Well, we see here, Back to number eight, that Moses and Aaron gather the elders. The elders were gathered together. It's a a harvesting word, this word gathered. This brings us to an observation we need to make about this text. Sometimes Moses will say things that involves a whole string of events. So if I were to say, for example, that our nation passed a law requiring such and such. Well, that's easy enough to say, but then when you consider all the committees and subcommittees and floors and senates and all the revisions and reworkings and constituents and all the stuff that that law has to go through, it's a mouthful to say that we passed this and that law. And so that's exactly what's going on here. Moses says that they gathered all the elders The Israelites were scattered all about Egypt. This was a long, hard process of not only knowing who the elders were, finding them out, convincing them to come, convincing them to leave their slave work, get to a central location. And yet, again, we see the Lord is in all of this. Suddenly, what would be a daunting task 
became something so simple that it's almost an afterthought in the retelling of it. Moses meets the elders. And then our ninth development is that after Moses shows them what the Lord has done, and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and they did the signs in the sight of the people. It's interesting. Moses says, I only want you to do these signs if they don't believe. Moses says, what if they don't believe? He says, we'll do these signs. We're not sure if they did or didn't believe, but maybe Moses was taking no chances. (laughs) Well, just in case, let me show them the signs anyway. Well, it says that the people heard and they believed. The elders took the message back to the Israelites. And the people began to believe, and it says that they bowed their heads and they worshipped. In Hebrew, it literally means, and bowing, they bowed low. Here was a word from the Lord for them. And their instinctive reaction was to get on their hands and knees and praise the Lord for what he was up to. And here, this is a microcosm of the book. Let my people go that they may serve me in worship. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Moses gives laws and gives ordinances so that the people will worship according to the Lord's commands. Worship is a central theme of this book and here. In this final preparation, we see a nation on their knees, looking to the Lord and his working. Those are the nine final preparations that God takes before starting something big. Now I'd like to hone in on three lessons, three lessons from these preparations. Number one, God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. There's three confirmations here in this text. He says, I'll send you Aaron, and he did. He brought him from all the way across the land to meet with him. God says the people will believe, and lo and behold, they did. Moses is even able to go on Jethro's blessing. And here, at the beginning of this grand adventure, God starts giving little confirmations to his words. And this is clearly building the confidence of Moses as he journeys forth to do the Lord's will. And I find that that's often the case in believers' lives. God is asking you for something, and you theoretically, as it were, take a step out in faith. I'll do that. And before the real hard lift, before the real heavy lifting comes, what does God do? He starts giving you small confirmations along the way. And it gives you great faith for when the hurdles start to come. That's what God is doing here. He's always keeping his word. Number two, God is patient, dogged, and uncompromising. God is patient, dogged, and uncompromising. Moses was holding a 40-year sin in refusing to bring his son visibly into God's covenant people. 
And just because Moses had been ignoring it and pretending that God hadn't said it, God doesn't say to Moses, well, then since you aren't acknowledging it, I'll just go and do my thing. No, no. God is patient. He gives him 40 years. He's dogged. He goes and he confronts Moses. And he's uncompromising. It doesn't matter that his son is now 30 years old or more. It needs to be done. God does the same thing with Pharaoh. God gives Pharaoh every opportunity to repent. Pharaoh is the man who wanted the Egyptians to throw all the Hebrew babies into the Nile. All the boys, anyway. Throw them into the Nile. And God sends a person to say, let my people go three days into the wilderness. That was the, that was the only punishment that was on the table initially. Three days. Let my people go three days. They'll worship me. And even to that, Pharaoh said no. And God is dogged. He stays after him. And in the end, God is uncompromising. You will let my people go. My friends, God is patient with us, isn't he? But let us not forget that God is uncompromising. We learned in Sunday school today that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And simply turning our back on the Lord or pretending that he hasn't said something won't serve. God will stay after you. And yes, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, praise the Lord, he's not going to leave us alone. Praise the Lord, he's going to keep pursuing us until we lay down the rebellion of our hearts at his feet. Number three, God expects us to make individual application to his word. God didn't want Pharaoh, I'm sorry, God didn't want Moses to listen on behalf of Pharaoh, but he wanted Moses to listen on behalf of Moses. <laughs> and God comes to us and he shows us his word. And, I mean, I've, I've never done this, I say sarcastically. <laughs> I've never read a passage or heard some preaching and thought, man, Danielle really needed to hear that today. <laughs> no, my wife, I would not. But it's so easy for us to do, isn't it? Preachers have jokes about their wives sharpening up their elbows and nudging their husbands for a reason. There's always somebody that you can think of across the aisle or across the country who needs this somehow more than you do. Jesus says this is like a person who sees specks in other people's eyes but is ignoring the giant beam in their own. And here, Moses was going to confront Pharaoh for something God had said, but was hypocritically holding back a part of his own life 
And God wanted Moses to hear the word of God on behalf of Moses. And praise the Lord, Zipporah was there to act quickly, and clearly that was the heart of Moses too once he was confronted. And so, before we go to the Lord's table today, perhaps there's one of those in our lives. And as we've listened on behalf of us, as I have listened on behalf of me and not somebody else, perhaps the Lord is putting his hand on something specific that he's been doggedly pursuing you about. His patience is great and his mercy is even greater. He will forgive. And even if it's one of those life-defining sins that you find it hard to bring to the Lord in your shame, God forgives those too. In fact, that's his specialty. He loves doing that. He did it for Moses. He did it for David. He did it for Paul. And he'll do it for you. Let's bow for prayer.